So today's session is looking at Luke 4, 14 to 30. And we're basically looking at how Jesus is the culmination of um, all 929 chapters of the Old Testament. Um, yeah, just in one man, pretty much. Okay, so uh, Luke 4, 14 to 30. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Right, so as, as many of you will know, there are lots of stories in the world. we got, you know, novels, great novels like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, all the classics. And some are 100% fiction. Some are kind of 80-20, some 50-50, and some completely based off of facts. You know, you might have an author that takes inspiration from a historical event and adds an interesting twist on it in order to engage their readership and sell copies of their book. Or, for example, an account exactly as a historical event happened. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, it is a very long story. But it's also 100% true. The Old Testament contains 929 chapters written over a period of more than a thousand years with more than 30 authors, yet remains incredibly cohesive because it is God-inspired literature. Now, I was wondering, how many verses do we think this has? Just jot something down or remember it. Um, I'll give you a couple of seconds to do so. How many chapters were there again? So 929 chapters. So everyone got an answer? Cool. Right, so the actual number of verses is 23,145. Did anyone get anywhere near close to that? If you think you got close, just say it. Um, I've got 900,000 if that's close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like 27,000. Nice, that's pretty good. Okay, the important thing to remember about this is that Jesus came to fulfill all of this, all 929 chapters, all 23,145 verses, he came to fulfill all of them. And the essential thing to remember is that when Jesus came in first century BC, 
he came as the long-awaited Messiah. So it's quite a proclamation when he says that all of the Old Testament, all 1,000 years of this is fulfilled in this one man. It's quite revolutionary almost. And even more incredible is the fact that this comes after 400 years of silence. God's people have heard nothing for the last 400 years. That's the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I guess translating that into modern day terms, it would be it would be like if in one of his plays, William Shakespeare had said, oh, this great Messiah, this great ruler is going to come down from heaven to earth and you know, he's going to do great things. That's kind of the time scale that we're looking at. But then between now and then we hadn't heard anything. So that's why there's kind of all this anticipation um, about Jesus, about the Messiah, um, which we saw in the baptism last week and the week before. And yeah, it's really just incredible that after such a long period of time, like he is here. And sometimes we can see throughout Luke that people respond to this in varying ways. So we can see in Luke 4.14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So he returns in triumph, following 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, where he was tested and tried, where his relationship with God was strengthened. Um, he succeeded where Israel failed. So again, we have this kind of idea that Jesus is the, he is the kind of perfect representation of Israel. Um, so again, we've got links back to 40 years of Israel in the desert or Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. And this this is really emphasized in the Gospel of Matthew, the idea that Jesus is just the better, perfect version of Israel, pretty much. So we can see in the Old Testament as well, if you look at Israel, yes, Israel is a nation. Yes, Israel is God's people, but it's also God's son. And this is where the parallels really come in. You have this idea that Jesus is the true and better son of God who came to raise Israel from their sin. And that can be seen in the passages Exodus 4.22, where it reads, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Or Deuteronomy 32.6, where Moses is talking to the people Israel and he's rebuking them for their actions towards God. And he says, is he the Lord, not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? And then finally, again, in Hosea 11.1, 1, where it's talking about God's love for Israel. And it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. So we have this very paternal image of God being created here. This idea of a loving creator, God, who cares deeply for his children so much that he would send his only son to die for us. Now, looking back to Luke and to the passage at hand today. We can see in verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So you kind of have this idea that Jesus lived in Nazareth. And at this point, he's about 30 years old, give or take. And you can imagine that he'd been going to that synagogue almost every week for 30 years. And, you know, like very little that happened. You know, he would have just been showing up. We see in Luke 2. He talks with the teachers of the law, questions them, just kind of learning to um, develop and deepen his understanding of the scriptures. But yeah, there's this idea of kind of continuity, I guess, and just constantly going back to God for sustenance and really just leaning into him on a regular basis. So yeah, we can see in this passage that obviously Jesus was so full of the power of the spirit that everyone wanted to hear him speak. 
when Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority and authority that hasn't been heard or seen for the last um, for the last couple of hundred years. This authority is conveyed through his word and through the passage that he selects. But it's interesting to note, actually, the portion of the timeline that Luke leaves out. So you can see in John's gospel, you have this section, a couple of uh, chapters between the end of chapter one and the end of chapter four, where John talks about the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and Judea. And while Luke is meticulous with facts, it's important to remember that this book is being constructed for Theophilus in order to convey the true ideas behind the Christian faith. And it's clear that Luke misses out this part of Jesus's ministry when he's in Galilee and Judea um, in order to underline the strong link between Jesus, who is God's Messiah and God's spirit. And this idea that he's you have that image of the dove coming down from heaven. Um, he's filled with the spirit and then he's immediately sent out into the wilderness. And then as we read through Luke's gospel, you can see that after he's uh, like he one moment he's out in the wilderness. And then the next he's back in a synagogue teaching with power and authority. So there's this idea that Jesus, who is God's Messiah and God's spirit are intrinsically linked. So looking at the passage that Jesus is handed, whether he selected this, whether this was selected for him, um, it's unclear. But this passage really ties in perfectly with who Jesus is, mostly because it was actually written about him. It is a prophecy written by Isaiah hundreds of years before. And it's talking about Jesus and what he's going to do. So if we look at the passage of scripture, which he reads, it comes from the book of Isaiah, as I said, from Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. And it's one of the greatest Old Testament summaries of the gospel. And it's basically it's talking about Jesus. It's almost like, yeah, just an account of what he what he will be and what he'll do. So if we look at verse one, Jesus opens and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And while these are Jesus's words, they are also Isaiah's words. But Isaiah is actually speaking prophetically for the Messiah, um, if that makes sense. So the fact that, OK, here we are a couple of hundred years on and Jesus is speaking these. And then if we jump right through to the end, verse 20, it says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. Uh, verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we have this idea that. Jesus, he's just kind of going, he's going to this temple, almost like his local church. He's gone there probably every week for the last 30 years. And he's reading this passage about the Messiah, about God's anointed one. And he's saying, look, I am this person who this passage is speaking about. This is all fulfilled through me. And that's important to remember as we look at the people of Nazareth's response later on. The idea that Jesus is the son of God and he's completely perfect in his deity and his humanity he is holy god and holy human but the fact here that he opens this prophecy about him with the spirit of the lord is on me the fact that jesus needed the holy spirit clearly shows that we need it too you know as flawed humans as flawed individuals how much more do we need the holy spirit of god than jesus did and the good news is that that's available to us um which we'll come on to later but yeah, and the great thing is to remember that, you know, through that same spirit, it is the same thing. It's not like, oh, OK, there's the Holy Spirit for Jesus and there's the Holy Spirit for us. Um, Jesus talks about how he will give us the great gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the same gift that comes from the Father um, to us. 
And then if we look on in Jesus's reading about this, it says the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And this really identifies the speaker as the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, Messiah literally translates as anointed one. That's seen in 1 Samuel 2.10, where he's talking about his anointed, uh, which is the Messiah. Now, the verb anointed, to anoint, what, what does it mean? What did it mean? What does it mean now? If I said that to you, what, yeah, what kind of images does that immediately evoke for you? Isn't it like being blessed with like holy oil? Like they did that with the kings and stuff um, back in the Bible times. Yep. So in the Old Testament, you have the idea of oil and anointing is they'd kind of, they'd like sprinkle oil over them um, or apply oil. And in the Old Testament, they were literally anointed with oil. So we can see this in the priests in Exodus 28:41 uh, is how they would be ordained into priesthood for um, for the rest of their lives. It's kind of that I guess transition process. And the oil was an outward sign of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Yeah, it was an outward representation of in real internal spiritual work. And as you said, Catherine, it is important to remember that they also anointed kings. So obviously you had Samuel who anointed David and many others throughout the Old Testament. Um, the kings would all be anointed and ordained, um, ordained and put in position by God. And this idea of priesthood combined with kingship actually harks back to Jesus's genealogy seen in chapter three, um, where obviously we can see that he's descended from David the king, but then also he's descended from Zerubbabel, who was a priest um, in the time of the minor prophets. So this idea that Jesus unites perfectly both kingship and priesthood, this idea of a kind of fusion of the two, just further highlights the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God. He is saying right now, that, OK, look, I am I am the son of God. And. This would have been quite shocking to the people of Nazareth, but we're going to look at the idea of anointing in the New Testament. Katie. Okay, hello. So we're not going to be rubbing ourselves with oil to be holy right now in this new world. Uh, so in the New Testament, anointing is basically us being set free by Jesus's Holy Spirit. It says in 1 John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. So in the New Testament sense, anointing is being filled and blessed with the Holy Spirit. And it is available to all, luckily for us. It's not just available to people who are kings or priests. So yeah, Jesus died on the cross for all of us, for us all to be redeemed which is brilliant. Um, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, linked with the verse Romans 8, 38 to 39. Also a famous verse, Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Um, sin blinds us and Jesus will open our eyes to God's unending love and promise. So basically it's just the idea of that no matter who we are, we all have God's redemption. Um, and we don't need to be doing amazing acts for us to deserve God's love because his love is never ending. And we are just very, very lucky to be able to have this in the New Testament and for Jesus to die on the cross for that. Basically, more of the story is we don't need to rub ourselves with oil for anointing. We are all blessed. Um, 
yeah, thanks to Jesus. That's pretty much it. Back to Ben. Thank you very much. That pretty much sums up the last half of the reading that Jesus reads out. Yeah, talking about how the ministry of the Messiah, how he's going to bring sight to the blind and good tidings to the poor, um, you know, through his work, through the Holy Spirit. The concept of the Holy Spirit, obviously we're talking about, you know, Jesus filled with the power of the Spirit. What we see later on in Acts, the idea that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's important to remember that that's not like a one-time thing. We don't go to God and we think, okay, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're done. Do you know what I mean? We never have to get filled with the Holy Spirit again. It's this idea of a constant a constant topping up, this idea that we need to go back to him and depend on him for, for our daily bread. I mean, you can see that even in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray, give us today our daily bread. There's that idea of dependence on God, which goes completely against the grain of society where we're told that we need to be independent, that we need to you know, look out for ourselves. But, you know, Jesus preaches a ministry of dependence on God because God is perfect. And, you know, when we knock, he will open the door for us and he will support us through all aspects of life. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not just a one-time thing. It's a active and continuous action, how we can, we can keep receiving. And the good news is it's never going to run out. God can just keep giving out of his wonderful grace. Now, looking at verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. I must admit, when I first read this, I thought, OK, why has he sat down? He's just done a reading and now he's sat down, but he's still continuing to talk. Surely sitting down symbolizes the end of his sermon. But um, with some research, I actually found out that Jewish rabbis normally preached sat down. So that explains that the reading would be given standing up and then they'd sit down to do their sermon. And this sermon that Jesus is giving it's as much about his identity as it is his mission so again going back to the start we have this idea that jesus is this long-awaited messiah he's the combination of all 929 chapters of the old testament right through from the start of genesis to the end of malachi and this long-awaited messiah there's this idea of longing from israel again through these 400 years of silence that they've just had nothing from god and then this son of Joseph, the local carpenter's boy, he comes into the synagogue and he's just like, I am this long awaited Messiah. I am the son of God who would fulfill all the prophecies one by one as he lived his life, as he died and as he was raised again. And the fact that you know Jesus is the anointed one, he's not just someone who is anointed by God. He is the one that really shook the people of Nazareth, as you can see later on. Um, in a sense, it's no wonder because these were people who had been, I guess, almost living under a rock for the last, you know, couple of hundred years. They haven't heard anything from God. You know, they weren't really expecting it to be the carpenter's boy who had been going to the synagogue regularly. And he just suddenly rocks up and claims to be the Messiah. Now, on the concept of the Messiah, I wondered if anyone could remember what first century expectations of the Messiah were there? What kind of character traits were people looking out for back then? Um, wasn't it like a warrior and like a big guy? Um, I don't know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, so they were kind of expecting a great warrior king, like the likes of King David, to come and overthrow the the Roman oppression. Because if you look back through Israel's history, you have this cycle of um, Israel sins. They are taken by someone, whether that's the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and then God redeems them through a through you know, a great warrior king. 
um, and he delivers them. So there's kind of this expectation that they will be delivered once again from the Romans by God and that he'll destroy all pagans and their incorrect religions. And there's this, yeah, there's this expectation that it will be a, a powerful man who will come to overthrow the Roman oppression and basically just make life good again for the Jewish people. And it is here that Jesus reminds them of a bit that he actually omits from his reading. He stops just before it. So in Isaiah 61, if you actually read on from this passage, you can see that it talks about a day of vengeance for the people. And this idea that the Jewish nation is at a crossroads, at this point, it's kind of the pinnacle, a turning point in history. Because before this, you have the 39 books of the Old Testament. You have all those scriptures. And then here you have Jesus who fulfills all of those. And there's this thought that how Israel responds to the Messiah, to the Son of God, is critical for their future. And this is shown through previous Jewish texts and through the Old Testament itself, talking about the story of Elijah and Elisha, where Israel turned away from God's saving power and instead it went to a foreign widow, as we see in verse 26, a widow in the region of Sidon. And then again with Elisha, God's saving redemptive power goes to the enemy general, um, Naaman, who was the Syrian. And yeah, there's just this concept that Jesus is challenging the Jewish nation to repent and believe, to just really respond to him in the correct way. And if they don't, then there ultimately will be vengeance for that. And I think that kind of translates to us today. We have this concept that, you know, we are we are called by God and he is, he's giving us this fantastic offer, this amazing gift of grace, which is totally free. There's nothing we've done to deserve it in the past, quite the opposite, in fact. And there's nothing that we could ever do to deserve it in the future. But this has been given to us completely freely through his grace. But we can see from the latter part of the passage that, you know, the people have had enough. Like, they don't want to listen to the carpenter's boy speak blasphemy, because that's what it would have been back then. They would have seen it as, you know, okay, this is just some guy claiming to be God, effectively, because the Messiah is the son of God. And they just weren't really having any of it. You know, they were happy with the comfort of their 39 books, their 929 chapters, their 23,145 verses. And I think this is really where Luke is challenging us, that, you know, sometimes we, we have to step outside our comfort zone. We have to step outside of our bubble and look up and see what God is doing. We can become so self-absorbed and self-focused that we forget to look around and just open our eyes to what is really happening and what God wants us to do. So we can see that later on the crowd tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to, you know, throw the Holy One of God referenced again in Isaiah, throw him off a cliff, get rid of him, no more blasphemy here. And you'd think that a normal person would be violent or scared, you know, they might try to fight back. But we see actually not Jesus in verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I just wanted to just get some thoughts. How, like, how do you think he did that? Um, I have no clue, but I know, like, nothing's impossible with God. So, like, he, Jesus can do anything, I guess. So if he wants to walk through a crowd, I guess he can, you know. Yeah, yeah pretty much, I guess. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how it happened, but we can probably assume that it was something to do with the Holy Spirit, that, you know, Jesus was just like, you know, I'm just going to walk through this crowd. In the same way, he was like, you know, I'm just going to walk on water, or I'm going to turn water into wine. I'm going to raise these sick people from the dead. 
um, because as you say, with God, nothing is impossible. And he was sent to earth to, you know, to die for us uh, in the way that God intended and God's will will be done no matter what. And if we look actually further on into chapter four of Jesus driving out an impure spirit, you can see actually that the moment that he sees Jesus, the moment this uh, spirit sees Jesus, he is just completely panicked to see all 929 chapters of the Old Testament personified. And ultimately, there's like, he knows that there's only one way that this encounter can go. As he says in verse 34, that, you know, have you come to destroy us? There's this idea, seen again actually in Revelation 12, 12, that there's only one way this fight can end, that God will ultimately have the victory. Um, so yeah, Revelation, he, the devil, is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Yeah, so I guess just to have confidence that there's nothing too big for God, but there's also nothing too small for God. I think sometimes we can kind of get into the thought that, oh, you know, it's just a small issue. Like, it doesn't really matter that much. But yeah, just know that God is deeply interested and involved in your lives and that he wants to have that relationship with you and that nothing is ever too big or too small for him. And that, you know, we can always come to him in prayer. And we can see that this authority that Jesus speaks with from being filled with the spirit, it translates into action. As he says in verse 35, be quiet. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And this is the same authority that we have access to today. So I think ultimately the final message from this is that Luke wants to challenge us through this. And he's challenging us to not miss this event, to not miss Jesus, to not miss the Messiah. And how do we do this? It's a call to widen our mindset. You know, this 1000 years of scripture have been fulfilled in one man. And it's a call to not be stubborn like Nazareth, to accept with gladness that Jesus has changed everything. He's changed the process of being anointed. You know, as Katie said, we no longer have to cover ourselves in oil in order to receive the Holy Spirit. We have this idea that, you know, as said in Acts 2.38, if we, as Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, if we just come to God, lay our sins at his feet and just ask for forgiveness then we will receive the gift of the holy spirit and the gift of eternal life so yeah all of this happened for you it happened for me and that's really why luke puts this in he's showing that the messiah jesus is the culmination of everything that's ever happened and that we just have to open our mind and just let him in and let him into our lives to work through us and yeah, we've basically got to live for him because he loves us more than we could ever begin to imagine. Thank you. That's all from me.